I think the main thing to realize is that this constant consumption of reinforcing digital media, you know, in, in all its manifold glory, um, that the cumulative effect of that over time can actually be to put us into a state that is very similar to a clinical depression or a clinical anxiety. That essentially what, what's happening as we're engaging in behaviors that release a lot of dopamine, our reward neurotransmitter, is that our bodies and our brains try to compensate for increased dopamine by decreasing dopamine production and transmission, not just to baseline tonic levels of dopamine firing, but actually below baseline. And that after a while, we can kind of get stuck in that dopamine deficit state. And that usually manifests not as, oh man, I'm addicted to this thing. What it manifests as is a very kind of a subtle and pervasive dissatisfaction with our lives. You were listening right there to Dr. Anna Lemke. Now, you may or may not be familiar with her work. She is a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine, and she's the chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. Uh, all that is fancy lingo for this woman is so brilliant with respect to addiction and not just the addictions that we historically have thought of in our culture around alcohol or drugs or uh, gambling, pornography, any of these uh, drugs or behaviors as she qualifies them, but she's also uh, brilliant at understanding the psychology, the remedy, and um, and then basically where we are culturally around our relationship to social media and digital devices. This is one of the reasons I wanted to have her on the show because I think it's very easy for us culturally to point at things that, oh, this is a bad behavior, and yet here we are um, in a you know, immersed in a digital ecosystem and that has brought so much good, but we have become increasingly unaware of the challenges of everyday use of the dosage and the frequency of what it means to, to live in a digital world. Obviously there are so many, you know, positive attributes, but I think all of us, it's not a stretch to realize that there's more we could be doing to even raise our awareness and change some behaviors around the relationship we have with technology. Yes, even you, you who are identify as a digital creator, this is an absolutely brilliant episode. Dr. Anna is, um, she's reasonable. She's smart. She actually gives us tactics to help us. And she shares in this particular episode, uh, her own story of being addicted to what would otherwise be thought of as a very positive thing. She was addicted to reading and, uh, is a brilliant episode. So grateful to have her on the show. I'm going to get out of the way and let you enjoy today's journey with Dr. Anna Lemke. Dr. Anna Lemke, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited about our conversation today and to be super direct and upfront, our conversation is going to be about this balance of in a culture where we can seemingly have access to nearly everything where the world knows that we are dopamine monsters. And at some point, the um, having everything all of the time can be harmful to us. 
and yet seeking pleasure is not necessarily a bad thing. So how do we create some sort of a balance between doing the things we love, the things that are surrounding us at all times and trying to get us to pay attention to them and the, the peace and the quiet that we need to maintain our own health and basically keep balanced in an otherwise noisy world. So that's where we're going today. And for those who might be new to you or your work, I'm wondering if you can start off the show by helping people understand your background and um, why, as I understand it, you're excited to talk about this stuff today on the show. Yeah, super excited. So I'm a psychiatrist, um, which you know means I've been to medical school. I've done a residency in psychiatry. I've been on the faculty here at Stanford University School of Medicine for going on 25 years, uh, so a really long time. Um, I have the classic three-legged stool of academic medicine, which is that I see patients, I teach, and I do research. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about this topic, which I call the plenty paradox, uh, broadly speaking, um, because I think it's so relevant for um, our lives today. Um, and of course, you know, we all want to find some kind of serenity in life. And it's um, increasingly hard to do that because almost everything in the modern world has become drugified in some way. And what I mean by that, it's, it's become more reinforcing, um, which is to say from a neurobiological level, releases a lot of dopamine, our pleasure neurotransmitter, all at once in that part of our brain called the reward pathway. It's also become more plentiful and more accessible. And quantity and frequency of use matter when we think about um, how intoxicants and all their various forms can change our brains over time. Um, and the result is that we've all become vulnerable to the problem of addiction. Even those of us who um, may have thought that we don't have, you know, that tendency, uh, which would, you know, include me prior to my getting addicted to a certain type of um genre novel um, in my early 40s, which even though I was treating patients with addiction and studying addiction, I really didn't see it happen until I was um, pretty far into it, which is also a tricky aspect of compulsive overconsumption. We don't see it as it's unfolding. And so what I, you know, the message here is that we need a new kind of vigilance and a new way of living in a dopamine overloaded world. Um, and we can look to the neuroscience of pleasure and pain, as well as the lived experience of people in recovery from severe addiction as a way to create a roadmap for ourselves going forward to navigate uh, this world of plenty. Mm. The most recent book is called Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. And obviously that's a, uh, a very suitable wrapper for what you just described, a package, if you will. Um, I highly recommend it. We're going to talk specifically about the book, but I'd like to begin our conversation after your eloquent introduction of it there, specifically starting with addiction. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you can help, like if you ask most people, are you addicted to something? I think generally they would say no. There are people who are aware they have problems, whether those are um you know, to their phone or to drugs or alcohol or any n number of things that are that you know are in our culture these days. But uh, I'm guessing I don't know the stats. You probably do, but that most people 
say, oh, well, you know, I spend too much time on my phone, but that's not an addiction. And, and so I'm wondering if you can start off by giving us a sort of the base of the pyramid here around what is ad addiction and how ought people who either think that they don't have any issues with that, um, how they might open maybe their other eye or squint a little bit less and, and come into this potential problem wide-eyed. And then there, of course, there are the people who would identify as having a problem, but I'm hoping you can just set the table for us so that we, we can understand a little bit more about addiction, its roots, and what are some maybe good definitions of the, the word addiction so that we can get started. Great. Okay. Well, let's just start by framing it very broadly um, to say that since the beginning of human history, there have been uh, records of people who are not able to use intoxicants in moderation. And so the perennial question has been, why is it that really the majority of folks can use things like cocaine, alcohol, opioids, can cannabinoid products, uh, you know, since for, for millennia in moderation, but there's a subset of individuals who cannot. Um, and over time, uh, as with all mental illnesses, we have come to classify that subset of individuals who cannot use uh, in moderation and whose use becomes out of control and compulsive, such that eventually they're using in a way that harms self and or others. We have come to classify that as individuals who have addiction, which we now consider to be a disease, a mental health disorder. Um, I always like to say up front that there are no brain scans or blood tests uh, to diagnose addiction. Just like with all mental illnesses, we base the diagnosis on what's called phenomenology. So this is our observation of patterns of behavior that are similar across cultural groups, demographics, um, times in history that are so strikingly um, characteristic of a certain phenomenon that we have come to consider it to be uh, this particular um, behavior uh, that that we, we classify as a disease. And indeed, this disease model is now bolstered by an explosion in the neuroscience uh, of what's happening in the brain, um, what changes are occurring um, as people become addicted. Um, so when we're diagnosing addiction in a clinical setting, uh, we rely on, broadly speaking, on the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which has 11 criteria, which can broadly be summarized as the three Cs, control, compulsions, and consequences. So individuals who are using a substance or a behavior, um, and when we're talking about behaviors, we're talking about behaviors like, we historically have talked about behaviors like gambling, um, which is has a preliminary inclusion in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, but now increasingly encompasses behaviors like online pornography, uh, online gaming, uh, online shopping, online monetary trading, potentially social media, et cetera, et cetera. Those are not formally included yet uh, in the DSM or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, but nonetheless, uh, behaviors can manifest um, very similarly um, as addiction, you know, addiction to behaviors can manifest similarly as addiction to um, substances like drugs and alcohol that we ingest. It's important to recognize that just like depression is a spectrum disorder, addiction is also a spectrum disorder. So people can have mild, moderate, and severe forms of addiction. 
Unfortunately, we don't have a very scientific way of classifying that. It's just the number of criteria you meet. But in real clinical practice, it tends to be kind of a gestalt, like, gee, you know, is this person kind of a mildish or a moderate or a more severe? And then there's also pre-addiction states, right? Like, so states of maybe physiologic dependence or risky use that don't quite meet that threshold criteria uh, for addiction, but, but are headed in that direction. Um, and I think this is important for um, the, gen the average person to understand because, again, um, what we're seeing is growing rates of addiction all over the world, as well as growing rates of use of intoxicants. And I'm going to use, when I use the word drug, I'm very broadly speaking, not just about drugs, but also about alcohol, which is a drug. And I'm also talking about um, addictive behaviors. And again, the top three that we're seeing clinically are gaming, uh, pornography, um, and gambling, and then now increasingly just digital media, digital content, including YouTube, social media, a variety of different websites, texting, sexting. Um, and the reason that we think that, 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 that those are also addictions um, are, number one, those behaviors light up the same parts of the brain's reward pathway as drugs and alcohol do. And number two, the phenomenology of the disease process to drugs and alcohol is identical to addiction to behaviors, which is to say people usually start out using for one of two reasons, either to have fun or to solve a problem. If the drug works for them to have fun or to solve a problem, they will return to using that drug over time, that drug changes their brain. We can talk a little bit later about what happens in the brain. But essentially, the, the, the effect of those brain changes is that the individual needs more of the drug and more potent forms over time to get the same effect. And when they're not using, they're in a state of subthreshold or serious withdrawal. And then after some period of time, the withdrawal actually drives the reuse rather than the seeking of the euphoria or the effective problem solving. Um, and then, you know, then people have all kinds of consequences, right, where their their whole reward pathway essentially gets hijacked by this substance um, and they they lose a sense of proportion. Um, they, they're investing all their energy and creativity on getting the substance, using the substance, uh, recovering from the substance or or the behavior. So um, that's kind of the, you know, the phenomenology. When you look at the epidemiology, what you see is that even in protected groups like older people and women, we're seeing stark increases in rates of addiction. For example, alcohol use disorder uh, in women has gone up 80% in the last 30 years. In older people, it's gone up 50%, right? So the, and the millennials are the first generation where the number of women in the United States with alcohol use disorder is approximately equal to the number of men with alcohol use disorder. So this is completely uh, transformative, right? For generations, it was like five to one uh, men to women, and then it was two to one men to women. So the millennials are really the first generation where we're seeing as many women uh, presenting with uh, alcohol problems as we are men. And, you know, many different drugs are manifesting that behavior. If you look at teenagers and teenage use, what you see in the 80s was that about 16% of teenagers report, were, uh, reported past month drug use. Now it's about 67% of teenagers report past month drug use. So that doesn't mean that they have a drug use disorder, but just the fact that minors or teenagers are using drugs with that kind of frequency shows the increased access to drugs, the normalization of drug, drug use. Um, and of course, with increased access, and increased use, what you have is increased risk for addiction. Wow. Fascinating.
you said so many things there that I want to put a pin in. Specifically, I, the almost the last thing I think is a good place to uh, move our conversation, which is the almost universal access. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, let's say 15 years ago, we could see a world uh, where information was moving more quickly, right? Through the internet, through you know, communication devices that we've all got with us at all times. Information is moving more quickly. And information is, you know, packets of stuff, right? Information can be, uh, you know, a text or a sext or uh, the, the ability to buy something on the internet. This, again, I'm using the word universal, acknowledging that there are, you know, probably a, a billion plus people on the planet who don't have immediate access to that. But for anyone listening to the show, we can, I think we can qualify that as near ubiquitous access to information. What role has that immediacy and the, you know, if you can think of it as not just information now, but information leading to the delivery of goods or the delivery of this, the dopamine essentially, has this, is this the only factor? Is this the key factor? Or there are a number of factors that, um, and basically put us in this situation. Well, I, I think what you're getting at is kind of the confluence of the technology and the internet and our increased uh, potential for becoming addicted, uh, not just to traditional uh, drugs, but all, all kinds of new novel um, drugs that didn't exist before, including information, right? So, so dopamine is very sensitive to novelty. It's essentially the neurotransmitter that tells us to wake up and pay attention and potentially approach a signal in the environment. Um, so the the constant stream of information that we get certainly has the potential to prime that reward pathway to lead to um, pulses of dopamine uh, that we're getting at a near constant level, which is effectively changing our brains. You know, in the way ways that I that I talk about, which essentially lead to this dopamine deficit state or a state of kind of like depression, anxiety, irritability, insomnia. And what, what's, I, what I think is really, um, you know, inferential, but nonetheless compelling, is that if you look at um, rates of anxiety, depression, suicide, um, physical pain um, all over the world, what you see is that um, those rates of those kinds of problems are increasing all over the world, but especially in rich nations which again is extremely paradoxical because these are the same nations that have access to state-of-the-art mental health care treatment. These are the nations where we're prescribing more antidepressants, mood stabilizers, anxiolytics than anywhere else in the world, and yet we are more depressed, more anxious, more likely to end our own lives, a horrific tragedy. I'm more likely to take opioids for pain, for chronic and mysterious pain conditions. So, you know, the hypothesis that that sort of that I'm putting out there um, is that it's actually this state of plenty that is the primary physiologic stressor that is causing us to feel more anxious, depressed, and suicidal because of the mismatch between our ancient wiring, how we process pleasure and pain, and the modern ecosystem. We were wired for survival. We were wired for difficulty and hardship. And we live in a world in which we're largely insulated from pain, in which we have access to nearly infinite pleasure, 
And the result is that our ancient wiring is reeling in response and trying to accommodate all of this dopamine and and not doing a very good job at it. Well, this, our ability or lack thereof to manage the accessibility of all this stuff, uh, I think is not a mystery to those who are listening. I think they can understand that. I'm curious uh, around the things that are a little more seemingly uh, harmless. You uh, have been open and sharing about your, I don't know if you classify it as addiction, so please uh, correct me if I'm misspeaking here, but you mentioned in your intro a particular genre of novel. And I'm wondering if you can relate. I think it's very easy for people, oh man, this person is addicted to porn or this person's addicted to um, the dopamine hit that they get when they're online gaming with, with friends or whatever. But what about some of these less common um, pathways to addiction that, again, I'm looking for trying to make sure that people who are listening know that we're not just speaking to the people that are on the fringe, but you know the data you've shown or shared with us already points to it. But I'm curious to hear a little bit about your, your experience with the genre novels. Sure. So I have been a reader all my life, and and reading has been from a very early age the way that I self-soothe and cope and escape. Um, and for the most part, you know, you can imagine that was highly adaptive. I was just frankly lucky in that regard. Uh, that re- reading is soothing for me. Um, that you know was advantageous in school. It's it's advantageous in in many different settings. Um, but. Uh, some some somewhere along midlife, when things were actually you know going very well for me, which I emphasize just because there is this sort of um, idea out there that people get addicted in response to uh, an injury or a psychological trauma or the lack of human connection, all, all of which has some validity. But you can also have the perfect life or a very good life. And still get addicted. So I always like to emphasize that. And the reason you can still get addicted is because you have a human brain and because these uh, substances and behaviors are addicting and they were engineered to be uh, addictive. So what happened to me was that um, I, you know, heard some moms at my local, my kids' local elementary school talking about this book called The Twilight Saga. And they were saying, oh, it's so good. It's so good. And so I I read it. And, you know, the truth is that, um, I mean, it's not an especially literary event. But for me, it was completely transportive. It provided some kind of escape from my everyday life that was very reinforcing. And so I went on to read, you know, the, the all, all of the Twilight Saga books, and then I read them again and reread them. And of course, with each read, they lost some of their potency. But they were really a gateway to the discovery of a whole genre of romance novels, which I had never really encountered before. Um, having been, I don't know, too busy doing other things probably, but sort of had a confluence of enough leisure time um, at that point in my life and it just being just, you know, kind of rubbing my brain in just the right way. Plus, the you know, I got a Kindle, so that made then access very easy. As soon as I finished one romance novel, I could read another one. And I was sort of off and running. I was reading, read all the vampire romance novels, and then I read the werewolves, and then I read the, you know, the soothsayers and the witches and the warlocks, and then I got basically over time into you know frank erotica, 
um, you know, which was like information or let's say writing that was really not consistent with my values, um, not something that I would have been interested in before, but because I came to it through a, a gradual progression of self-titillation, I basically needed increasing potency over time to get the same effect. And then it was interfering with my goals and values in ways that happened so insidiously that I wasn't even aware of it. The examples would be I, I found myself on family vacations instead of spending time with my kids and my husband just holding up in a room and reading romance novels. And that's all I wanted to do. Um, there was one point we got invited to a neighborhood party. I literally took a book with me and hid in a room and read romance novels. I preferred that to socializing with our friends and neighbors. Uh, and then, you know, the the nadir probably was when I, one day I did take a romance novel to to work and found myself reading between patients instead of, for example, doing my charting or just reflecting on the interaction that I'd had with the patient. So more and more, I, I wanted to be not in my own body, not in my own life. I wanted to escape into this fantasy world. Um, and I really didn't see it happening. You know, that was sort of, again, sort of very ironic because I, I treat addiction. I teach about addiction. And yet it happened so slowly and gradually that um, it wasn't really until I had a, an interaction with a student of mine, a kind of a practice where he was being the therapist and I was being the patient. He said, oh, what habits do you want to change? These are kind of some motivational interviewing interactions that we do. And then I sort of said, oh, I have this late night reading habit I'd like to change. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, I couldn't, I didn't specify to him what, what genre of novel. That would have been far too embarrassing. But um, I couldn't unsee it after that. So, you know, and that gets to sort, sort of begins to point, point at some of the interventions. But the point here is that even reading has become drugified, right? So these novels are very clearly engineered to reach a certain climax at about three quarters of the way through the book. Uh, you can open any ro romance novel at three quarters of the way and you can find, you know, the sex scene. Um, they're everywhere. They're incredibly accessible and numerous. Um, you know, once a certain romance novel takes off, you can find, you will, there will be thousands of copycats to feed the gaping maw of, um, you know, the need of readers. If you look at the New York Times fiction uh, bestseller list, at least five right now in the top 15 are romance novels. So, um, you know, this is to some extent, I think of it as sort of socially sanctioned pornography for women. Um, and it certainly has given me sort of an insider empathy, I think, to treating my mostly male patients with, with sex addiction. Well, thank you for sharing that. And it's such a powerful example, obviously, because you are in the business of treating this. And uh, I would love to underscore this, the sort of, um, I don't know if insidious is the right word, but this slow and gradual where right. you, you haven't actually noticed anything. And um, my background, share a little bit, I, I am a lifelong artist and entrepreneur and a number of, about a decade and a half ago, I started a learning platform and this learning platform had millions of users. And as a part of this, you take on venture capital and there's some, down in Silicon Valley, there's some very smart people. And one of the reasons that I decided to go down there and, and embed myself in this culture was it's basically the major leagues of entrepreneurship, right? So I wanted to be a part of that. And 
through those experiences, I came to know the actual humans who came up with the ideas and were tasked with making social platforms addicting. That, that this is their, like literally their job definition. And they were heroes within these companies and within the culture for doing so. And when you, it's a little bit different to watch a, sh a documentary on Netflix or to, um, hear about it or to read about it in a journal or an article, but to actually know the humans, I found it a step function more scary to say that. And so given your story of how, you know, this was so subtle and it came on, I'm going to venture that there are so many listeners right now, watchers, listeners, who, if you look carefully or maybe even not that carefully, could say, oh, this relationship that I have with, I'm going to say my phone, <laughs> right. on the other side of the phone is all this basically 24-7 dopamine. Right. That when people actually grok that it is designed, engineered, as you use the word engineered for in the novel two or three quarters of the way through, this is mm. where the climax is, like, to me, that that should be a wake-up call. It's not always, but you have called this, I think, the hypodermic needle. Is that right? Mm -hmm. The hypodermic yeah. needle yeah. Uh, of the modern area. And for those who, sorry, for if you're not watching, you're listening, I was holding up my phone. This is it. So to me, this is a this is a uh, a warning shot, right? This is, we are all subject to this. And I think if I surveyed my friends, there are lots of people who are on the receiving end of this. And again, it didn't start off to be evil, but we have come to know it as we're 24 seven dopamine addicted. What can you tell those folks who are now listening? They've, they've decided to lean forward in their car or <laughs> they pushed their earbud a little a little further into their ear. Now that we've got their attention, what are some things that you would say to these folks who are now curious about their consumption habits? Mm. Well, I think the main thing to realize is that this constant consumption of reinforcing digital media, you know, in, in all its manifold glory, um, that the cumulative effect of that over time can actually be to put us into a state that is very similar to a clinical depression or a clinical anxiety, that essentially what, what's happening as we're engaging in behaviors that release a lot of dopamine or reward neurotransmitter is that our bodies and our brains try to compensate for increased dopamine by decreasing dopamine production and transmission, not just to baseline tonic levels of dopamine firing, but actually below baseline. And that after a while, we can kind of get stuck in that dopamine deficit state. And that usually manifests not as, oh man, I'm addicted to this thing. What it manifests as is a very kind of a subtle and pervasive dissatisfaction with our lives. A kind of like, hmm, maybe I should get a different spouse or hmm, maybe I should get a different job or I really don't like this area you know, that I'm living in. Or I need I need a new friend group. Whereas prior to engaging with these reinforcing substances and behaviors, we were pretty happy or pretty satisfied, uh, you know, with what we have. 
And so it's very difficult to observe this kind of decathecting or withdrawing from the world and a kind of isolationist self-titillation that makes everything else in our lives seem less than. And our focus gradually narrows on this one reinforcing substance and behavior. And then it, it takes on kind of outsized importance in our lives. So it, it's not that we notice that the behavior is compulsive or that we notice that it's addictive. Instead, usually how it manifests is everything else kind of is not appealing or not as appealing. Um, and that, I think, is a very subtle but important thing to observe. So if we're going through our lives and just sort of slightly like unhappy and restless and disconnected and lonely and bored and whatever it is, and trying to find out why, one of the things we might actually look to is what is it that I'm ingesting on a regular basis that is pinging my reward system such that my brain has to compensate by actually downregulating my own feel-good uh, neurotransmitters and hormones. And then, you know, the kind of key intervention is the dopamine fast or the abstinence trial. If you're not sure, put it away for, I say, four weeks, because four weeks is about the amount of time it takes to reset reward pathways. But if you can't do four weeks, do a week. If you can't do a week, do one 24-hour period. You know, put that, put all screens away. And then just observe. Observe what you go through. And what most of us go through is withdrawal. And the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and all kinds of self-talk uh, that uh, tries to get us to use the drug again, even though we committed to using it. So for example, in my case, um, sort of after this like kind of like, wow, like am I actually getting addicted to romance novels? Could this actually be causing some harm in my life? I decided, well, you know what? I'm going to do what I advise my patients. I'm going to give give these novels up for four weeks. And I couldn't believe the degree to which I went into withdrawal because it was the thing that I looked forward to all day. It was the thing that put me to sleep at night. And all of a sudden I didn't have that. And I found myself wide awake, restless, anxious, almost in escalating panic as I tried to pass into sleep. And of course, this is exactly what I hear from people who use cannabis or alcohol or whatever they're using to try to calm down, reward themselves, go to sleep. It's very, very scary and very, very hard, but really important for us to do that. And that lasted about two weeks, that kind of intense withdrawal, which is what my patients will also describe. And then by the time I got to weeks three and four, started to kind of almost like return to my body in a way and, and my brain reconnecting with myself and other people in the world. Um, and then this kind of you know insight and realization, wow, that was really messing up my life, you know. Here I thought it was a kind of a harmless behavior or a little reward that, you know, no big deal. Um, and yet it it created a kind of a disconnection uh, that was ultimately, in a cumulative way, very negative. Um, so of course, after four weeks, I said, well, now I'm good. I can go back to using. And I picked up a romance novel, binged all weekend long, you know, bleary-eyed, going to work down. Whoops, uh, I guess, you know, I guess I can't do that. And so then there's a kind of a recommitment to, okay, well, what, how am I going to reintegrate this drug into my life, if at all? And that's the discussion that we have with patients all the time. But doing the experiment can be incredibly informative. Yeah, I love that. And prior to us recording, I, you've been on my dear friend Rich Roll's show. I've been a guest on his show. He's been a guest on this show. So I feel, I feel like our audience is well acquainted 
with, and he has written at length and uh, shared on this show about his addiction to alcohol. Yeah. One of the, to me, if I have an agenda for our discussion today, it's to present your work or help present your work in such a way that it's like, hey, it's not this sort of this big red flashing light that so many people who, you know, grateful for them who have shared their story very publicly about addiction and the process of moving through it. Rich, I think, is a fantastic example. Uh, but I'm interested in the things that are not that. That, I think, has a place that is already established in our culture. It's like, we need, this person needs help. The person becomes aware. I need help when it's affecting my life. But there's this whole other layer that I am terrified of from my own experience, the experience. I, I, I think I can say I don't actually know a person who cannot, who could say, or it's so, it's so small in number who could say that they do not have that experience that you describe with romance novels in some way, shape, or form through the device that they're carrying with them all the time through their phone. And as a group who are listening and watching the show right now, who identify as creative, who identify as digital or digital native or digital first or, or you know, the availability of the digital tools that allow creators and entrepreneurs to do their work, it just so happens that the same tool that you use to do that work is the tool that provides this, is this digital hypodermic needle as you describe. And so I'm wondering if you can help us understand, is there, again, we're talking about the subtle stuff, not the overt, the same tools that I use to create on my phone. I take pictures, I edit those pictures, I post and share them, uh, you know, to build audience, to help, you know, get my work out there in the world. That's actually the same tool. So the, it's the equivalent of saying like the work that I do is with a hypodermic needle that I can put all kinds of different chemicals in. And so the question then is how ought we live in relation to this, you know, when things are within arm's reach all the time and that thing that I'm doing for work, I'm touching a computer, I'm a writer, a copywriter, a digital marketer, I'm whatever. That's the same tool that delivers dopamine 24 seven. So right. how can we have a healthy relationship at all? Yeah, yeah. It, well, I mean, that is the the question for our times, because it's very clear that you know the genie's not going back into the bottle. It, you know, we we are digitized humans, and there are many many wonderful things about the technology, um, including the way that it can connect humans across time and space. But clearly, th it has this dark side, and we have to figure out how to have healthy relationships with these digital drugs or we're not going to make it. Um, and, and so it partially depends on the person. Um, you know, everybody has their drug of choice. For some people, it's alcohol. For some people, it's romance novels. For some people, it's their phones. Um, and the people for whom it's their phones, which is, you know, more and more of us, um, you know, they're going to have to take more extreme measures in order to be able to um, live in equilibrium. So I, what I talk a lot about is what I call self-binding strategies. Self-binding strategies are ways to use time, space, and meaning to create uh, both literal and metacognitive barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice so that we can just press the pause button between desire and consumption. If we don't 
create those self-finding strategies in advance and anticipate desire, we will be slaves of desire. We cannot rely on willpower alone. Willpower is an exhaustible resource. So those are things like um, setting up strict times in the day when we will be on our devices and trying not to be outside of on our devices outside those times. So it might be like I'm going to be on my device from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. and make the times outside of that uh, sacred somehow and really um, sanctify them. So there you have the meaning piece too, too like committing to being with family or being with friends uh, in a you know in a hundred percent kind of a way, all device free, especially for parents you know raising small children. We absolutely have to make some tech free spaces where we're fully present with each other in the moment. And we have to be intentional about doing that in advance because it's so easy to get drawn in. So, you know, it's tragic. You go to restaurants or wherever you see, you know, parents of young children just like on their devices. And what we model for our kids, they, they will they will do for us. We see lots of families who say, my kid's on their phone too much. And within, within the session, the parents on their, you know, goes to their phone. So, you know, the, the, these, these are the kinds of things like that we, we have to think about. Um, another thing, you know, the, make, making the, the digital media less potent. So, you know, Andrew Huberman, uh, my friend and colleague here at Stanford, talks a lot about how making his phone gray, go grayscale was huge for him because he's very visual. And so when it was less, um, you know, dynamically um, infused with color, it was less appealing to him, right? So making it less potent, making it less accessible, um, using, again, the time construct, using literal barriers. So I have patients who will literally lock their device up like in a kitchen safe or a timed kind of device, which there more and more people are making now. Um, so we've got, you know, technology coming in to help us help ourselves, which is really smart. And a lot of it has been apps to sort of, um, you know, map how much time we're using. And those are instructive in the sense that we get to kind of see and be more aware, but they're not very good at halting us, unfortunately. I think we're learning more and more. And I've really become a very strong proponent of it's not just what you're doing on your phone, it's actually just actually being on the device. And what we need to make sure we do is physically distance ourselves from the device for some period every day and potentially for a part of an entire day per week. So this kind of digital Sabbath is, is really what I'm advocating now for individuals, for families, do it together as a friend group, do it with your kids. But, you know, take a day have nobody go on their device, and then really um, build that day around being fully present for each other in the moment. And what people will often describe is that well, it's actually boring um, to be with my family or my friends. I'd much it's YouTube, and you know, it's much more interesting. Or gaming. It's like, yeah. And the reason it's boring is because pleasure and pain are relative. And when you've exposed your brain to the potency of these digital drugs, of course, real life is going to pale in comparison, but that's because you're in withdrawal. And if you can just get through the withdrawal and reinvest creativity and energy into human beings in real life right in front of you, you will regenerate the aliveness of your real life experience. And it will become so much more appealing than anything that you could do online. But we have to do it. We have to make the effort. It's not going to happen just by passively sitting back and, and hoping. There has to be a huge investment. And I, I go around, I talk to a lot of schools and a lot of parents. It's like, yeah, you know, I think we were kind of sold a bill of goods with this technology. You know, every every child, one child, one laptop, right? Well, it turns out it's just made a bunch of, you know, a whole generation of kids 
struggling with attentional problems. I mean, how could any a teacher at any level of education be more exciting than a TED Talk on YouTube? There's no way, right? So we there has to we have to get the devices literally shut down and out of the classroom and get people being present together in the moment. And something very magical happens then. There's probably like you know, chemical pheromones or something that get exchanged between people. They sync their breathing, they sync their emotionality. And together, when we're all present, you have an experience that is not possible in the virtual world. And I think that, and again, this is not to say that these virtual connections are not not real and not good and not advantageous. They are, but we have to, we cannot, we cannot have our entire lived experience. I don't believe that we want or should to go into the metaverse. You know, that is not what we need to be doing. We can spend part of our time in the metaverse and, you know, get good things out of it, but there are very good things from being together, alive, in person, whether it's with our children, our spouses, our friends, or our colleagues. We need to balance the virtual experience with that lived experience. And I think during those in-the-world experiences, we cannot have devices present. It's not possible to create the dynamism and vitality of real life if we are even mildly distracted by the digital device. I am fascinated by this. I'm writing about attention right now. I'm working on another book and play is one of the big factors that I'm interested in, attention. Mm-hmm. And what I have come to believe over the last several months of writing is, you know, ultimately our attention is all we have in this life. Like literally it's all we have. If you distill it down, I mean, we have a body, but other than that, the thing that we place our attention on is that's all we have and whether we're, how we're choosing to spend that attention. So in this world where attention is our, you know, our, our limiting reagent to any reaction or the thing that we have this, you know, people talk about time, but I even think that time is actually malleable. Science agrees. My experience of time is different when I'm doing something that is in one category of thing or doing something in another category of something I love or something I hate or something mm-hmm. where I've got a, a sense of flow. So I'm even, I'm, I'm past time. I'm saying literally all we have is attention. Right. And to hear you speak both eloquently and very disturbingly about the nature of our attention as a culture in this moment, it terrifies me because when I think about the people who are myself, you, the people who are listening to the show right now, I think you said something like, like a serious or a deep or a, you, you used an adjective that was, we have to take a very concerted effort to nip this in the bud now. And I think about my own, all the stuff I've gone on in my life. I've got a new puppy where, you know, we're going to, and how do I put something like this, which is of paramount importance. We have to learn to manage our attention and if I'm taking you at your word, we have to invest some significant, again, I wish I had the adjective. I should have taken a note. You said, I think it was intentionality, intentionality. Yeah. yeah. Something, yeah. something like, right. Right. if you do, this is not a passive activity. Right. This is not only an active process, but it is of massive importance. How do we get that message out? Like, is it fear? Do we have to tell people that you are going to turn your 
brain to digital mush. Like, <laughs> what, how how do we get people to care? When, yeah. In a world where we've got so much going, it's 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 sort of like there's there's porn, digital porn, life porn, whatever. There's porn everywhere, and yeah. I need you to turn your back on it and go for a walk in nature. Like that sounds right. like the hardest thing to do if you're a human being. Yeah. So I like to use the language of of experimentation um, in order to invite people into this project. Um, so for example, I see many people who come to me not for explicit treatment for addiction or compulsive overconsumption, the broader spectrum of addictive behaviors, but rather because they're anxious, because they're depressed, because they can't sleep, because they can't pay attention. And, you know, in my screening of them, I discover they're smoking cannabis every day, or they're drinking a half a bottle of wine every night, or they're playing hours of video games, or, you know, compulsively masturbating to pornography. And so what I say to them is, well, you know, 20 years ago, I would have suggested uh, an antidepressant or a certain type of psychotherapy. And now what I'm going to suggest is that you try an experiment and you cut out that substance or that behavior for four weeks and let's see what happens. Because I have a hypothesis that just doing that alone might so significantly improve your mood and sense of well-being that you will have a real aha moment. You know, the aha moment of, uh, of the scientist where you say, oh, wow, I thought that this behavior was uh, my reward or was making me feel better uh, or was, you know, taking care of my um, inability to sleep. And now that I have some distance from it, I see that it was actually causing that problem. And once people see true cause and effect, I no longer have to persuade them to engage in the project of trying to have a healthier relationship with this substance or this behavior. They themselves are very motivated to do it. And it doesn't mean that they'll never, you know, it doesn't mean a lifelong abstinence for most people. What it means is figuring out, okay, I want to go back to using this substance or behavior, but I want to use it differently. Um, the vast majority of people want to use it less. Quantity and frequency matter when we think about the addicted brain. Um, and so, okay, how, how can we do that? What kind of, again, self-binding strategies, uh, what kind of alternative rewards uh, can you put in place so that you can maintain a healthier relationship uh, with this substance or behavior? And people are on board. So again, inviting people, because this life is, you know, and people... They, it's clear that people are desperate for information on how to live better. I mean, the, the, the number of, you know, the whole, what does they call the wellness industrial complex, which I think is a great way to capture kind of what's happened now. But, you know, people are coming from a very authentic place of like, yeah, I want to be happier, you know, or I want to feel more purposeful or I want to be less unhappy. You know, how can I do that? And so, you know, the paradoxical message here is, the relentless pursuit of pleasure for its own sake actually leads to anhedonia, which is the inability to experience pleasure in any form. And that ironically, by giving up or eschewing these pleasurable things, and even I would suggest intentionally doing things that are hard, we can reset our reward pathways and be more contented in the world. Mm. Uh, one of the things that I have in my notes I'd like to go back to is, is I mentioned in my own story about going down to Silicon Valley and actually knowing some of the people who are manufactured this. You uh, appear, if I'm not mistaken, in one of the films, the documentary films about that called The Social Dilemma. 
and spoken at length on the topic. The idea that we can live in a digital world where the expectation is that we are on our devices for work, for example, and yet how to maintain a, um, a healthy relationship. You yourself talked about being becoming aware of your reading um, addiction, then trying it off for four weeks, rewarding yourself for that four weeks by indulging again, realizing you had a problem. And so in let's, let's just go beyond the obvious. Okay. You do this for four weeks or 30 days, I think is right. what they talk about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in to break an addictive behavior. And you've encouraged us to then this sort of survey. What are you feeling? What are you thinking about mm-hmm. it? How did, how did it strike you? Let's go one level deeper and maybe through the analog of your own story or some other that you can share with from your research. Okay, great. We heard you quit for thir- for 30 days and then you went right back to it and then you became more aware, but what's the long tail of that look like and how can we start to build happy, healthy relationships with this besides just turning it off sometimes, you know, putting it into safe. These are all individual ideas and some, mm-hmm. presumably some practice of assembling all this is the right thing and it's going to be different for others, but What's the sort of the next level down if we excavate into uh, how we actually do this? Yeah. So this is where I think the lived experience of people in long-term recovery from traditional severe addictions is incredibly helpful. And I I really have to say, I've probably learned more from my patients over the years uh, than I've provided them any kind of intrinsic wisdom or knowledge in return. So what I did was I said, okay, well, clearly... I had what's called the abstinence violation effect, like a binged after. So I committed to a year of abstinence um, from this particular behavior. Um, And I was able to do that, you know, which kind of speaks to me being less vulnerable genetically to addiction problems than others for whom it's it's not easy to do that. Um, And they very likely will need more support, more resources, more interventions. But for me, I was able to give it up for a, a full year. And then, um, and then had the experience that many people with addiction talk about is this kind of in- continue to have euphoric recall for using. So um, the thought of reading a romance novel would come into my mind. I would really want to do it. Um, it would be, I would remember only the good and none of the bad. Um, um, and that would then pull me to the behavior again, which after a year I, I tried again reading. And yet it was really interesting. It was like my brain had changed so that... Um, essentially, I never could get the same type of reward from reading as I got previously. It was like I had burned out those neurons. Um, and yet the desire and the craving stays stayed, stay, has stayed with me to this day. To this day, I have cravings for romance novels, except that when I read them, I get very little or no pleasure from them. And afterwards, I feel much worse. And you will hear that again and again from people who are addicted to alcohol or cannabis who have been able to maintain some longer term abstinence. Um, there's this, you know, the, the brain is kind of permanently changed in this very strange way where we have these kind of hippocampal tattoos or memories of euphoria associated with the drug use, but uh, no more joy uh, with the use. So again, this doesn't necessarily help with this problem that you're pointing out where people have to be on their devices so they're continually being primed, yeah, for for their for their work. And and again, I just think 
I, I, my, my book focuses on what we can do as individuals, but really this is a communal problem. And what we need to develop as a society is digital etiquette around what is normative and appropriate use and what isn't. And also we have to have the government schools and the corporations who make and profit from these drugs help us help the individual, just like we mandate other top-down measures having to do with global warming or we make people wear seatbelts. There have to be more measures in place so that we can help ourselves. And, and we, we need to do that by first recognizing that these really are drugified experiences and that the majority of people who engage with digital drugs will not actually become addicted to them, but a subset of vulnerable people really might encounter a life-threatening addiction. And the rest of us will deal with compulsive overuse, just like we all deal to some degree with disordered and compulsive overeating because our food supply has been drugified, right? So this is, to me, the, the you know analogizing digital drugs to food is very useful because we can't not eat. And I, as an individual, am not going to change our food supply. I can go to great efforts to go, you know, get more vegetables, right, at my very expensive farmer's market. Uh, but no matter what I do, there are going to be cookies everywhere. And so this is this is the conversation, right? It's not like I've got it totally figured out. But I do think, again, looking to people in recovery from serious long-term addictions who, as a matter of life and death, have had to cultivate a certain way of living, that can be extremely helpful for the rest of us. To me, it's a fascinating solution that we look to people among the sickest or the sickest yeah. among us as who, those who have been fortunate enough or strong enough or whatever the, the, the aggregate of uh, right. behaviors to navigate through that, that they're actually right. our, they're our beacon, right, to, to learn from them. Um, yeah. That's inspiring in an unexpected way. Um, well, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't ask for the parents. I'm I'm a fun uncle. I'm not a parent. I'm a parent to a puppy, which is very different than <laughs> a human. But I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask for the people who are listening who do have small children in their lives or maybe, you know, teenagers, for example, where they're still in the household and they can still be, you, know, you still have a responsibility to manage them. Uh, what I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't ask what ought, how ought parents be thinking about this for their kids? I think the first and most important thing is for parents to recognize that the digital medium is itself inherently addictive and so a potential drug. And just like we wouldn't be giving our child wine for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, uh, we, we cannot expose very young children uh, in an unfettered way to the internet. Um, and so as long as we have some modicum of control over our kids, which is usually till about age 12, um, you know, it's, I think it's important that kids not actually have their own uh, internet connected devices and that not just what they're doing online, but how much and how often uh, should be regulated. Um, and I think, you know, although we don't have data yet on how much is too much, um, I certainly think for very young children, something like on the order of maybe an hour or two a week, is appropriate, um, as well as you actively as a family modeling the behavior that we want our kids to see. So many parents can justify their digital engagement because they say they're working, but how much of that is really necessary and how much of that is really a rationalization of an addictive behavior? So I think um, all of that is important because once kids get to be 12 or 13, they are off and running. 
And no matter what kinds of digital monitors we put in place, they will be able to outwit them. So if we don't establish a healthy baseline, which isn't to say we should give up monitoring, you know, but by then, by the time they're teenagers, it's all about the conversation. What What is safe and appropriate online behavior? How do you feel when you're playing that video game versus when you stop it? What do you think is the impact on your brain? These are These are the conversations, how hard it is. So we do a lot in our family of like me talking about, oh, wow, I got to watching, you know, YouTube, you know, Dr. Pimple Popper. And like three hours later, I was still watching horrific cysts being, you know, I'm just like, what? That's gross, right? I don't want to spend my life watching Dr. Pimple Popper, right? That's not how I want to say I, you know, spent my time on this earth. And yet, you know, there it was. So I think, you know, kind of a collective humility in the face of, the incredible potency of these devices as we come together. And then again, a really, really important to establishing these family times that are device-free, whether it's the whole vacation or just a family dinner, but put the devices down. I cannot help. First of all, thank you for the, uh, I don't know, prescription is the right term. Yeah, that's, a, that's right. That's right. Okay. Thank you for the prescription. Doesn't, yeah. sound, doesn't sound easy. Um, and I can't help but think there's this, you know, as someone who has been a huge champion for the accessibility that say digital tools provided in, in my case, and creating a, an online learning platform that millions of people use, like that's, there's such a strong, um, you know, corresponding good yes. to, the, to the outcome. Absolutely. And, right. and I find I'm where I'm torn is how do we in the light of it being so um, advantageous to, you know, break down socioeconomic barriers, access barriers, gender barriers, there's so many barriers that the digital universe has helped eradicate. And yet, you know, when I'm sitting here talking with you, I can't help but feel like an old person. (laughs) Right, talking about the idiot box, yeah. Yeah. And, And so, you know, to me, this is perhaps the, the biggest paradigm that I'm wrestling with is how to both be a champion for the good and an awareness of the harmful and make that sort of make that conversation engaging and meaningful mm-hmm. and, and where we don't just, you know, turn it on when it's they're saying things that we that sound good and turn it off when, you know, it's like, oh, I'm not going to listen to that part of it because that's not that's a piece of this sort of wellness industrial complex that you talk about that uh, like, okay, I don't, I don't need that. I just need the part where it says, Oh, you know, I can connect to millions of people and help them discover my work and whatnot. And then when we talk about how bad it can be. So are there other analogs looking backwards, whether this is uh, cigarettes and smoking or diet culture or are there analogs where we have actually navigated it successfully you use the example of seatbelts for example so but are, are there give us hope because this is really such a huge problem give us hope based on looking backwards that we can do this yeah well first i would yeah no no i would say there's i mean just the fact that we're now having the conversation is really important you know i had a sort of a front seat view of the dark side because i'm a psychiatrist and i had people you know, starting in the early 2000s, coming in addicted to porn, addicted to gaming, addicted to, you know, gambling. 
Um, so could already see that the vulnerable people were getting addicted. And then, you know, it took 20 years for the rest of us to say, oh, wow, I'm addicted too. But, you know, we've, we've made it there. And this message, it resonates for Gen Zers. So we're not just talking to some, you know, a bunch of, you know, over the hill folks. Um, you know, there are all kinds of nascent movements among teenagers now that this sort of, I don't know if you heard about this kind of Luddite movement. I'm California teenagers who have given up their phones and are kind of coming together. Who knows how they're coming together if they can't communicate by their phones, but they're, you know, in a moderated way, what they're mostly doing is leaving their devices or their phones at home so that during the day they are interacting with each other. Um, you know, there are whole schools that have implemented things like the yonder pouch um, so that kids have to put their uh, phones in a pouch through the course of the day that doesn't allow transmission. And what administrators are saying is that, oh, the schools are noisy again. In other words, people are coming alive, you know, in real time, in real life. So this is, uh, this is a universal message. I don't think, I don't think you and I are sort of in some kind of echo chamber here where we're only talking to sort of gomers who remember the days, you know, when. Um, and, you know, it's very, when you say like uh, other examples, a, a, a recurring theme throughout uh, the story of humans is the theme of access. If you have more access to a highly reinforcing drug or behavior, you're more likely to use it and more likely to get addicted to it. And when that access goes down, uh, you know, yes, your civil liberties are somewhat con constrained, but uh, the health of the population improves. And you can look at that. Um, you can look at, um, you know, the the whole movement to against cigarettes is a great example, right? So. Cigarettes, when we it used to be prior to 1880 when the cigarette rolling machine was invented, you know, you could produce like about four cigarettes per minute. With the invention of the cigarette rolling um, machine, that went to 20,000 cigarettes per minute. I mean, you can just imagine the impact that had on the number of cigarettes that were then transported all over the world. And of course, rates of nicotine addiction skyrocketed. Then in the last two, three decades, with more education about the harms of nicotine, taxation to make cigarettes more expensive, and not allowing advertising to minors. And that's a good model, right? Education, taxation, making the drug more expensive or even costing something, right? TikTok's free. Um, and um, also having legal guardrails around who can have access. Uh, that has vastly decreased the number of people uh, who smoke cigarettes in the United States, you know, for the better. Um, of course, now you've got other drugs popping up and you've got Zin pouches and you've got vapes, but Nonetheless, cigarette smoking consumption has has gone way down. Um, same thing with alcohol. You know, if you look at the movement that made the uh, manufacture sales um, and consumption of alcohol illegal between 1920 and 1930, approximately, uh, you had vastly reduced rates of public drunkenness, alcoholic liver disease. I mean, what people don't appreciate about that, they hear about the speakeasies and you know the black market. What they don't hear about is that the harms due to alcohol vastly decreased during that decade um, and remained lower for decades afterwards. It's only the last three decades where now we have increased potency and access to alcoholic beverages of all types that you're seeing uh, vastly increased harms again. So this idea of, uh, you know, helping us sort of say, helping ourselves save ourselves, and, and it is really important. I'm fascinated by this and I can't help but feel twinges of anxiety at so many, like, the thought of even saying, okay, remember prohibition, hey, there was a lot of good things. Like that just right. sounds like culturally taking away, I have a lot of friends 
um, I would say my alcohol consumption just culturally or time of life has probably decreased 90% in the last five years. And I do see a movement, perhaps it's because cannabis is more widely available or there are other mechanisms or there's just maybe, maybe it is the science. I, I don't know what it is, but there seems to be some sort of an awareness. But if you, if you take a snapshot of where we are now, you look back at prohibition, removing it entirely sounds scary. I'm a guy who's like, yeah, cool. I had a great steak. I want to have a nice bottle of wine with that great steak. That sounds good. You say like taking it away sounds so extreme. Mm-hmm. You're talking about civil liberties, but boy, our population was way healthier. And, you know, during that time we had less automobile accidents and less cancer, less blah, blah, blah. So is it fair to say that there is a safe middle ground for the stuff that with like seatbelts or smoking where we haven't got there yet or alcohol where we're not quite there yet? Do you feel like there's hope? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think usually the right path is somewhere in the middle. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not advocating prohibition, but I'm also not advocating legalization of drugs, which increases access, which, um, you know, increases population harms. We've shown that again and again. So, uh, again, that, that middle road and especially protecting both children, you know, and also uh, those among us who are most vulnerable, that would include people with uh, other co-occurring mental health disorders. Well, thank you for providing a pathway through all of this. Your work is incredible and very inspirational. Again, uh, for those who are interested, the book Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence uh, went paperback not too long ago. So uh, if you're concerned about that or probably not dissimilar to you, Dr. Ah, <laughs> available via Kindle. Yes, Kindle, and also Audible. A lot of people listen to it instead of reading it, which is exactly. Um, but fascinating. I think five thousand five star reviews on Amazon, something like that. Um, thank you for for doing the work that you do and putting it out there in the world. There's no doubt in my mind that we are in an age of increasing awareness, which is a good thing, and yes. the path we have to start taking active role. I know that when I put my phone away. I am a better person, I'm a better husband, a better friend, um, and I look forward to the journey, even though it doesn't sound easy. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's not, but you did the experiment and you you got good results. I like thinking of things as an experiment, and, yeah. and I would encourage those listening uh, to take an experiment digital fast, um, even sometimes during the day. I stay off my phone in the morning as an example. Um, thank you so much, oh, Your Honor. I appreciate your time. Welcome. Yeah, we'll be in touch soon. And sounds uh, good for those out there in the world. Uh, from Dr. Anna and I, uh, we bid you adieu until next time. All right, hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show, chances are your community will too. Right? In the particular lies the universal. Please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests either on social media or through my text community. All of that is pure gold. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away 
all of that has a collective massive positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing for this show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together. Together.